1: Listeners are cautioned not to rely upon any statements made in resolving legal issues they may face, but instead to consult with their own attorney about specific situations. Attorneys are not engaged in providing legal services while appearing on the program and are not responsible in any manner for the consequences that may stem directly or indirectly from reliance on any statement made during this program.
2: Good morning and welcome to Fed Talk. Today is Friday, July 15, 2022. I'm Jason Reifel from Shaw, Bransford & Roth. Today is our annual National Whistleblower Day special, where we feature leading voices in the whistleblower protection and advancement of whistleblower rights communities. For many years, the Merit Systems Protection Board, or MSPB, has been a frequent topic of conversation on FedTalk and on Federal News Network. Our listeners may recall that on this program last year, Senator Chuck Grassley joined the program to discuss the importance of restoring a quorum at the MSPB to protect employee rights and defend whistleblowers against retaliation. Uh, He has been a leading voice on these issues and is the chairman of the Senate Whistleblower uh, Caucus. For five years, the board has lacked a quorum of Senate-confirmed board members, uh, hampering the board's ability to function. Uh, all of its functions. Um, but in March of this year, the Senate finally confirmed two board members restoring a quorum. And in May, the board was, was restored to full capacity by the Senate with the confirmation of its third and final board member. I am super honored to welcome all three of those board members to Fed Talk here today. Uh, and let me first introduce our, our acting chair, uh, Kathy Ann Harris. Kathy is the final member confirmed by the Senate at the end of May 22 and was uh, sworn in on June 1st of this year. Prior to serving uh, at the board, she was the manager of the firm Cater Parks, Weiser & Harris in Washington, D.C., served as the chair of the firm Sexual Harassment and LGBT Practice Sections and has practice employment law including before the mspb for over two decades welcome to the program kathy and welcome to the board
0: thank you jason i'm so excited to be here thank you for having us
2: absolutely Uh, we're so thrilled to have you all next we have board member and vice chair raymond lamone Ray was confirmed by the Senate on March 1st, 2022, and sworn into his duties at the board a few days later. Prior to that, Ray served as the Deputy Assistant Secretary for Human Capital and Diversity and the Chief Human Capital Officer at the Department of Interior, uh, where he was a member, a career member of the Senior Executive Service. Welcome, Ray. Thank you, Jason. And it's an honor to be here as well. So glad to have you. Uh, And finally, uh, we have board member Tristan Levitt. Uh, Tristan was confirmed also at the beginning of March 2022, and at the time he had been serving as the MSPB's general counsel since October 2018, and in the absence of Senate-confirmed board members, he was serving as the agency's acting chief executive and administrative officer since March of 2019. Uh, Tristan has a long history of working with both the executive and legislative branches, uh, defending whistleblower rights and issues. Welcome to the, the Fed talk, Tristan.
3: Thanks, Jason. Really happy to be with you. Uh,
2: so again, we're, we're so glad to, to have a board and, and, and to, to now move into what are you all doing now that, that you're there um, in your seats? And, and we're kind of going to go in the reverse order of how we, we introduced you all uh, to talk about your initial experiences over these first few months transitioning into your roles as confirmed board members. And Kathy, we wanted to start with you. Uh, Just in, in your first few weeks on the job here, what have you been focusing on? What have you found on the ground at the agency?
0: Thanks, Jason. Well, I have to say I've been obsessed with deciding cases, figuring out how to do it, figuring out the technology how to do it, and then getting right down to work and voting, revising, drafting, and issuing decisions. So that's been the main uh, focus that I've had. In addition, just getting really to know all the staff and the the other operations of the board. What I can say is I've been so impressed with the overall intelligence and knowledge of the employees at the MSPB. It's really an incredible group of people. All the they're really specialists in this pretty niche field. They are so smart. It's it's really. I feel so lucky to be here and to get to learn from them.
2: Awesome, um, and it's so. Great and interesting that you're, you're diving right in. You know, that was one of the big things that was long talked about while this backlog had been building, and we'll talk about that later in this program. And so you're, you're dividing that responsibility of issuing those decisions and, and, and learning the ropes. Um, Ray, uh, so you've, you've got a couple more months under, under your belt, I guess about four months now, uh, and you transition into this role um, as a longtime civil servant, as a career senior executive, and an agency Chico. So you've, you've long grappled with these issues, but, but kind of on the other side of the fence um, in some, some ways. Um, why were you interested in taking on this new assignment at the board? And, and I'm also curious on the same question I asked Kathy, kind of what have you found and been focusing on in, in your initial months here?
4: Yeah, thank you, Jason, for that question. And the fact that I have been a long-term civil servant certainly played into my decision-making in taking this role. You know, I, I had served in 13 years as a career um, civil servant working in Republican administrations, 13 years in Democratic administrations. I've worked in small agencies like the Corporation for a National Community Service, the AmeriCorps agency. I've worked at the State Department with non-Title V hiring authorities. Uh, of course, I've worked at OPM for a number of years and then more recently at Interior. And having those different perspectives... I worked with many politicals over the year, and I never thought that I would have an opportunity to uh, be nominated for a political position as I have come accustomed to in briefing many politicals over the year. Now that I had this unique opportunity, this uh, awareness about how special this agency is, it was a stakeholder agency of mine. I I coordinated with uh, MSPB employees over my career. And also walking in with eyes wide open related to the backlog and the challenges without a quorum for a number of years, I felt like I was kind of teed up for this opportunity by having those career experiences, having an opportunity to brief politicals over a number of years, to now where I'm sitting in a role as a political, now coordinating with senior career staff here and making that transition, I think a little bit easier for them and for me, as to, uh, you know, we've gone down these, uh, these roads and these issues and these challenges before, and I'm, of course, super excited that uh, I was nominated and confirmed to be in this position. So I'm looking forward to taking those skills, those experiences as a career person and using that to inform my uh, role sitting as, as a member now with the board.
2: Awesome. Um, thanks so much, Ray. Really appreciate that. And again, glad, glad to have you there in the seat. Uh, last but certainly not least, uh, Tristan Levitt. So you've been at the board for the past several years now, holding it on the fort in a variety of capacities as, as we laid out in, in the run-in, and, and now you have been confirmed as well um, by the Senate in early March. And what has the transition been like uh, from uh, acting agency head, from general counsel, from, from employee t- into a, a Senate-confirmed official and board member?
3: It's been great. Took all of the agency administrative stuff, handed on over to Ray. Couldn't have been happier about that. Uh, <laughs> the reality is, it's a lot easier to to focus on one single thing, right, than it is to try and juggle many different balls. Which now Kathy is uh, has taken that baton herself. So it's really been a really smooth transition, I think, for all of us. I would say, but I've, I've it's been it's been really. Really easy um, and straightforward for me, and I'm I'm just happy to be able to focus on voting cases, working through the backlog, which is really the the job everyone wants us here to do.
2: Awesome, thanks Tristan, I appreciate that. And and in our next segment, we're gonna kind of get into that as you all have been getting back up and running and shifting duties around amongst yourselves and 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 staffing up to the extent that that not having a quorum limited you there uh, a bit. Uh, we're gonna talk about Uh, how the board has been getting back up and running after a quick break. You're listening to Federal News Network, 1500 AM. Welcome back to Fed Talk on Federal News Network. I am here with all three members of the Merit Systems Protection Board. Uh, and we're continuing our conversation to understand how things are going at the board um, as the members have been settling into their seats. And before we did that, we wanted to take a step back to remind our listeners about the mission of, of the board and the agency um, and and particularly this issue of of a quorum that has been talked about for so long. Um, what were some of those things that um, were unable to be done for some time? And so so maybe Kathy, I'll I'll ask you to to talk about just the mission of the agency and orient our, our listeners to that. And then maybe Tristan, I'll I'll have you talk about some of those things that couldn't be done when when the agency was absent that quorum.
0: Sure. Thanks, Jason. Well, the mission of our agency is to enforce and defend the merit system principles, which are set out in a statute. Um, And if you read them, uh, they're pretty amazing. Uh, They talk about recruiting individuals from appropriate sources to achieve a workforce from all segments of society. To determine selections on the basis of relative ability, knowledge, and skills after fair and open competition, which assures all receive equal opportunity. And that's just the first merit principle. Um, There's, uh, And it it goes on um, to prevent arbitrary action, personal favoritism, coercion for partisan political purposes, people using their official position to... Uh, interfere with or affect the result of an election or a nomination for election. That's what we call hatch act violations, I guess. Um, And basically to ensure that the workforce is efficient and effective. All this to say we don't want to waste taxpayer money. We want to make sure we're doing the very best job we can. And we also want to prevent what's called the prohibited personnel practices, also uh, laid out in a a lot of detail, which talk about don't discriminate on any basis, uh, covered by the law, don't uh, solicit People for you know promotion unless it's based on your personal knowledge of that person, you know stuff like that. Don't don't obstruct people from their right to compete uh, for employment. Don't try to influence somebody from withdrawing from employment. You know all these really lofty and wonderful goals, uh, which make I think the federal government a great place to work. You want to come and work for the government because we should be the model employer for our entire country. Uh, And that's what we're here to do. That's what the Merit Systems Protection Board is here to do, to help our federal workforce, which is the largest employer in the country with millions of employees. Uh, And we want to make sure it remains the model employer and that it's, it's a wonderful place to come and work.
2: Thanks so much, Kathy. And, and some of those aspects of your mission are at least making final decisions on people who had brought claims that they had experienced some of these negative actions had been held up. And that was that's why, especially during Whistleblower Week, um, we have been highlighting this issue. Um, and, and Tristan, can you just, you know, to remind our listeners, why was it important that there was not a quorum? What could not happen? at the board when there wasn't a quorum. So the start where you
3: did all whistleblower cases, both those where someone is claiming they were retaliated against and they have to go to the Office of Special Counsel first, Um, and those cases are among those that were in MSPB's backlog of cases just piling up. Even for those that didn't yet get that far, those that go to OSC and are asking them to investigate in situations where OSC finds that there, you know, is a likelihood that someone was retaliated against, typically they're able to request a stay of the board so that the personnel action can be kind of frozen in place until OSC gets through more of its investigation. Without any board members at all, so as long as there is at least one board member, those stays could be obtained, but without any board members at all, those weren't available. The main work, again, in addition to whistleblower cases, the, the docket of cases includes um, other... Uh, Appealable actions, otherwise appealable actions. So firings, demotions, suspensions of 15 days or more. And of course, MSPP has a really broad jurisdiction. So, other things like disability retirement cases, it's just a really, really broad array of cases that were all halted. There was no finality, no resolution because someone could only get a decision at the administrative judge level or for a select slice of cases, the administrative law judge uh, level. And then a person had the option to go appeal to federal court. But if they chose to get in line for the board, um, then they were stuck waiting for that uh, restoration of a quorum. Um, The other thing that sometimes gets overlooked is MSPB does studies. That's a really important part of the mission that the agency was charged with in the Civil Service Reform Act of 1978. And so those, you know, MSPB kind of squeaked its way through that we released some of the information during those years, but the really some recommendations that would come with reports and studies are also something that we're at a standstill in the absence of a quorum.
2: Thanks so much, Tristan. And I appreciate you reminding us about those studies because those, those are studies issued to the president and to the Congress uh, from the board on, on critical matters affecting the civil service. And we haven't had that for, for six years. Um, and, and Ray, I wanted to bring you in on this one next. And then, and then I may also ask the same question of, of your colleagues. As you, as a board member, have been thinking about priorities and have you've talked with your colleagues about priorities, how have you thought about what, what goes first? Uh, the kinds of cases, uh, the, the parts of the work, taking care of the workforce at the agency. How, how have you, as an individual, and how have you, with your colleagues, been, been thinking and working through that?
4: Well, Jason, as you know, there's no I in team. And so it's a collaborative process. And there are so many wonderful experts, uh, subject matter experts, here at the board. And as you know, our jurisdiction, as noted earlier, is quite broad. So we hear a variety of cases, uh, not only appeals, uh, but situations uh, in which uh, a retiree is challenging OPM's decision, and they would like to have their uh, uh, resolution happen soon in dealing with their retirement benefits. Uh, along with the adverse actions and, and the stays uh, that was noted earlier by Tristan. So we have a varied uh, stakeholder group, and everyone is important to us. Every uh, case has a name, and every name comes with a face, and they want to have their case heard first. We know we're walking into a challenge, and we'll talk a little bit about the um, size of the backlog, but this has came up uh, constantly during our nomination process, that we are committed to work as hard as we can, use every resource, use, every, um, uh, uh, use uh, every example of our experiences that we could bring to bear to bring down that backlog as efficiently and equitably as possible. So where I come in and, and look at particular cases, where I feel that my expertise in uh, managing uh, human resource programs, uh, working on rulemaking, uh, I also had the uh, great opportunity many years ago to run OPM's Office of Administrative Law Judges and familiar with the personnel system and, and understanding how hard our administrative judges work to um, to uh, adjudicate cases that ultimately come to us. So I think what we do is we bring our unique set of experiences and eyes on cases that come to us, and albeit they will come in an equitable manner, meaning uh you know, whistleblowing cases, adverse actions, uh, removal cases, suspension cases, et cetera. And uh, I think what we do, we tend to, to gravitate as quickly as we can t- to subject matter areas that we feel comfortable with so we could resolve those cases, knowing that we have expert attorneys at our disposal to uh, have them come in and help us review these cases and finalize these cases. Uh, and this is, I'll be honest, this is the part I find most exciting and challenging uh, about this because we don't want to have justice delayed as justice denied. We, we want to give everybody a, a chance to uh, to understand that we're working as hard as we can behind the scenes to to uh, adjudicate their appeals, but also understanding the, the tension of having 3,600 cases, which I'm sorry, I think we we're going to talk about that a little bit later, but you know how we get through this backlog at the same time uh, deciding cases as they come to us uh, concurrently.
2: Well, thanks so much, Ray, and we definitely are going to talk about that backlog in some more specifics. But before we get there, you know, maybe I'll 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 ask Tristan to come back in and and talk about what's been going on at the board through the pandemic. You know, how has it affected your your operations? You know, from a, a workforce standpoint, do it, 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 people have to be coming to the office to put hands on paper? have you been able to digitize stuff and, and how how has maybe some of what's going on during the pandemic positioned you all um, uh, uh, to address the backlog?
3: Yeah. So, of course, like everyone else in the world, um, the pandemic certainly changed how we do business. And there there was a really long stretch when we just prioritized maximum telework. We wanted to ensure the safety of our employees. Um, As more information came out and as uh, the vaccine became available eventually, um, and as the administration asked us to make plans for returning to work, then we followed that. Um, And so we are in a position now where we, you know, we do have folks in the office more. We had a lot of employees telework at least a couple days a week before the pandemic ever began. So that aided the transition as well. We're really in a good position to, to extend our telework further. One of the real benefits that came out of all of this was that there was a real focus on digitizing files. There's actually a new uh, board voting app that was developed to allow board members who previously had just had to review paper case files, they would, you know, physically sign off on opinions. Um, all of that has been digitized, such that you know we can be able to review and vote cases from anywhere, and that's I think really sped along the process here before even minor changes, someone would literally have to kind of ferry around from office to office to say, are you okay with this change of a couple words? And it's just so much smoother now, which has really been a great benefit.
2: That's super interesting. I love how technology is aiding the agency and its employees in working more effectively. And, you know, this is something that has been a common focus of multiple administrations. You know, how do we help employees focus on their critical work and not shuffling paper around from person to person. Um, we, we've got a, a minute or two before our, our next break, and I just wanted to see if, if Ray or Kathy, if you had anything else to, to add on top of what Tristan said about how the board has been uh, evolving its operations through through the pandemic in um, any way. Kathy?
0: Sure, thanks. Uh, well, I first want to say that this development of the board voting app has been incredible. It's it, everything is right at our fingertips. Um, so aside from allowing us to decide, you know, review and decide decisions remotely, I think it's just an amazing uh, tool to allow us to collect all of a, a huge amount of data and really have it right here ready to go click 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 we can find whatever we need so that's an amazing development and i'm i'm really grateful for the board employees who've developed it
2: Awesome. No, it's it's really wonderful to hear that, and um, it's great to hear you all. You all recognizing the colleagues who helped make that happen. Um, we've got to take a pause here for for our second break, uh, and when we come back into our conversation, we're going to dive into uh, a more focused discussion on on the whistleblower issues and, and the whistleblower backlog there, and again, how the board is starting to work through uh, these cases. Uh, you're listening to Fed Talk on Federal News Network. Welcome back. You're listening to Fed Talk on Federal News Network. We're entering the second half of our show with the Merit Systems Protection Board members, Kathy Harris, Ray Lamone, and Tristan Levitt. Uh, and in the second half of our program, we're going to talk more specifically about the backlog at the board and, and a focus on uh, whistleblower issues um, um, and, and how much of a percentage of that backlog they they constitute. And so just to give our listeners some context or to remind them on this, um, Kathy, what is the status of the backlog? How many cases are are sitting over there waiting for you all to adjudicate? And are there major categories or types of these cases um, that that, that are under that that overall number?
0: Sure. Our current case inventory at the board level, so at the petition for review level, is about 3,600 cases of those cases, about 25% have some whistleblower issue involved in the case. So it may be an individual right of action appeal. It may be that someone's raised uh, a whistleblower retaliation, affirmative defense in their uh, adverse action case. It, you know, it, it depends. Um, But overall, about 25% are whistleblower cases. Uh, but in the backlog, generally, you see every single type of case that the board handles, from disability retirement, USERA, VIOA, VOA, um, adverse actions, performance cases, restoration cases, uh, you know, issues that are really obscure within the board's jurisdiction that even I had never heard of before uh, coming here. So a lot of different kinds of cases. And and what I wanted to add to uh, the response before is that every case is important. Every single case is important. So it's really, really difficult for us to come up with a priority uh, list uh, because we want to make sure that everyone knows that that all every single case is important. So, uh, that said, we are really trying to find ways to expedite the overall uh, review. So, cases that may have um, trickle down to you know have influence on decisions of other cases, which Typically, the board has called precedential decisions in the past or opinions and orders, trying to prioritize those, trying to prioritize uh, cases that involve um, where the appellant may be one below uh, and was either, you know, and is waiting on on finality of of that matter because uh, that person may be be owed back pay and we want to make sure that person gets that back pay And that back pay doesn't continue uh, any further, uh, which is you know we want to get that person back to work uh, if possible, so to be most productive. Um, And in addition, you know, disability retirement cases. And again, what what happens when I start talking about the most important cases is I wind up talking about every single uh, aspect uh, of, of the board's jurisdiction because, like I said, they're all important, but. I'm particularly sensitive to those who are waiting on disability retirement benefits that they've earned uh, and is their right. Uh, And, you know, we want to make sure to get those people their income uh, if they're due it. And, you know, we don't know uh, how a case is going to come out, but if a person has one below, um, you know, that's something we want to look at hopefully sooner rather than later. Um, but again, I could tell you eight more categories of, of cases that, that are important. Um, and as, as I'm getting my feet wet here and, and I know Tristan and Ray have experienced the same thing, we're really trying to figure out all together how we can best prioritize things to get this inventory decided as, as best and quickly, but thoroughly and in it, you know, we want to make the right decision. You know, we don't want to just be voting and getting decisions out just to do it. Uh, We, we're here to, we're here to um, hopefully provide people justice and, and protect the merit system. So we need to be very um, thoughtful about what we're doing and, and make sure we're coming out the right way.
2: No, thanks so much, Kathy. I, I, uh, our listeners can't see this, but I can see kind of each of your faces as you've been talking here uh, about each of these appellants are individual people. And, and it's clear that each of you feel that um, when you're talking about this. And, and I think that that's really fabulous that, that there are three individuals like yourselves trying to work through a tough situation um, as best as you can. To provide that finality and certainty to individuals especially if they have have earned it or are entitled to it um
0: and i want to say one more thing which yeah. i think is really important is that the case inventory here or the backlog it's no one at the board's fault right it's not that the employees here at the board weren't doing their work uh, it's that there were no board members here to make those decisions so I want to make it clear to the listeners out there that, um, you know, I don't, I don't, the people here at the MSPB have been working really hard uh, in the absence of a quorum to do everything they can do to make this transition once a quorum has been restored to get things out in the most efficient manner. So I just, I just think that's really important.
3: Can I actually add to that, Jason?
2: Absolutely.
3: One thing that a lot of people may not realize about MSPB's process is that we have an office of writing attorneys that write up draft decisions for the board. And so when there were no board members, that work of that office didn't cease. So they continued as new cases were appealed from the AJ level, they continued to write those draft opinions. So, you know, they just they just They went into the the backlog, but the backlog was not only cases to be decided, it was also draft decisions after staff attorneys, multiple levels of uh, with multiple levels of review, drafted um, decisions. Of course, it's it's on board members to review those. And, you know, they may not agree or there may be other issues that they're focused on. But as a general matter, it really makes the work of the board members a lot easier because. You know, you're not starting from scratch on these cases. For every single one, there's a lot of work that's gone into it. Some of them where the work was done a few years ago, they've revisited it, right, to make sure that the case law remains current. And of course, in many cases, it's changed. And so there's an immense amount of staff effort that has gone into, you know, both, as Kathy said, preparing for the restoration of a quorum. And now the quorum has been restored to to continue to back that up with the the work that's been done. They're just feeding us uh, these cases, finally being able to see action on things that they've worked on over a really long period of time.
2: No, I, I thank you both for explaining in some more detail kind of all of what has been going on. And again, I think that it's really critical to recognize that no one has been sitting on on their hands um, and uh, piles have been made, work has been done to try to make um, uh, position you all as, as the Senate confirmed board members, um to make uh the decisions that you need um to make uh you know in your confirmation hearings for each of you and and it was noted earlier you know there were a lot of questions on the approach that you all um thought that you might take um how has that panned out has there been any uh anything new that has discovered just something that might not have been thought about before you were there on the ground uh together Um, Kathy, do you want to start on that one?
0: Yeah, as I suspected uh, when going through the confirmation hearing, uh, the staff, the career staff here were way ahead of our thoughts on this matter. They had really thought very hard about how to handle this once we got here, what to do. Um, So they've done a really nice job of Beating us cases to, in the first instance, to give us an idea of the breadth of kinds of cases we'll see. Um, And a a real combination of all this cases, cases that involve may award, I'm sorry, may involve an award of back pay, uh, disability, you know, basically every possible kind of case we would see. Um, And in, and they're way ahead of us. They're thinking. They're thinking months down the line. So so far, I've just been very impressed with the preparation they've done. Um, and it seems like they agree in with us that all the cases are important, uh, and they're doing their very best to triage them in a way that that helps us get them out in the most efficient way. But we're you know, as we go, I think all all of us are going to work together to refine that and and see what improvements we can make, if any. Um, and you know, just trying to think think as creatively as we can.
4: Yeah, Jason, this is Ray, another way to kind of add to that complexity and the level of effort that has occurred over the last five years is that when cases eventually do come to us after an administrative judge has ruled on a case and now it's uh, a petition uh, for review coming up to the board, those are in somewhat static environments. Uh, Fact patterns are, they are, you know, happened at, at a point in time. Maybe we're talking about 2014, 2013, by the time it gets to us. We know the law is not static. We know it evolves, whether it's through the Federal Circuit Court of Appeals or other district courts that we also need to be mindful of. These staff attorneys have to keep on the pulse of the changing uh, uh, legal doctrines that are out there, mindful of what Congress is doing, similarly looking at the Office of Special Counsel and other regulations. So there's been a tremendous amount of work going on behind the scenes before we even showed up. And so to allow us to then move as quickly uh, and and accurately as possible from that um, point in time, because there's been, and Tristan knows this very well, too, on some of his work that he's done on the Hill, that uh, there's a lot of evolving uh, around not only whistleblowing uh, statutes, but in in, in the broader context of employment law.
2: Yeah, no, I, I appreciate you sharing that, Ray. And, you know, one of the things that, um, I know has been a big development in civil service law that kind of coincided with the, the, the lack of quorum was some of the reforms at the Department of Veterans Affairs uh, focused on whistleblowers and, and, and the, the special accountability office that was created over there. And, you know, there there has been no board in place to kind of observe or, or weigh in on those agency actions. And and it will be really interesting to see how that plays out as that agency was used as kind of a, a test balloon for, for changing some of these things in the civil service. And, you know, don't want to ask anyone to talk about specific cases, but, you know, Tristan, just given your, your longstanding work, both on the Hill. And then, you know, given that you were at the board um, um, during this quorumless time, like how, how, how were you were the, the career staff, keeping tabs on some of those other moving pieces coming out of the legislative branch?
3: I mean, like any agency, we just, you know, track the laws that come out. And so, you know, where they, where they apply, and we make sure that knowledge of them is disseminated among uh, MSPB staff. Um, certainly those that deal with the VA have also gotten a lot of scrutiny, both from Congress in terms of oversight and then in the press. And so, you know, we monitor that with interest, but you know, at the end of the day, when when a case comes before us, we do the research that we need to do to find out what the applicable law is.
2: Got it. I uh, appreciate that. And before we we uh, take a pause for our last break, I just wanted to maybe ask Tristan to talk about kind of the unique relationship between MSPB and the Office of Special Counsel as it relates to whistleblowers and whether it's the process or, or, or how that works, um, because I think that, you know, the board plays a unique role In that part of the civil service and the merit system.
3: Absolutely. So the Civil Service Reform Act of uh, 1978, which created MSPB, breaking it down from the Civil Service Commission, created the special counsel as an arm of MSPB. And the Whistleblower Protection Act of 1989 uh, made it into an independent agency. So OSC is like the prosecutor who investigates um, if they can reach re- resolution with agencies, they do so. But where necessary, they bring cases before MSPB and we rule on them. We also, of course, have, as Kathy mentioned, you know, there are whistleblower affirmative defenses. So we see a lot of other whistleblower matters that don't come through OSC as well. So, you know, both agencies have a strong interest in ensuring, you know, the protection of whistleblowers, ensuring the law is followed. And ultimately, that's what helps, you know, helps root out waste, fraud, and abuse in the federal government, which is just a critical, critical role. To be done, especially in a, a government as large as the federal government is.
2: Thanks so much, Tristan. Uh, we've got a pause here for our final break. Uh, when we return, we will wrap up our discussion with all three board members of the Merit Systems Protection Board. You're listening to Fed Talk on Federal News Network. Welcome back to Fed Talk on Federal News Network. We are entering our last segment of the show with all three members of the Merit System Protection Board. And, and in this last segment, we're gonna we're gonna focus some more on, on whistleblower issues and also the way forward uh, for, for the board um, on, on some of the bigger issues that it's been tackling. And, and one question that I wanted to ask you all, you know, in this period where um finality in personnel actions and decisions has often been many years away for people um, that has created a sense of you know justice delayed is justice denied and, and we've talked about that here today uh, and so i'm just curious you know how is the board thinking about how is the board working to restore that trust and communicate the actions that you all um are taking and maybe ray we'll, we'll start with you on this one
4: thank you jason and uh, we do play a critical role As Congress envisioned in which uh, employees who take an oath of of office to do their jobs to uh, support and defend the Constitution. uh, The last thing they have to deal with is a a fear of retaliation, uh, an inability to speak out to. to uphold their oath and also to complete the the work that they're doing. And if they are chilled in their speech and in how they do their work because of uh, retaliation, uh, they need to have a place, a forum to go. And and as Tristan noted earlier, yes, they could go to the office of special counsel. uh, They could go to uh, other forums to um, raise their concerns, but ultimately uh, this administrative process is set up where cases can be adjudicated before an administrative judge. And, and, and that case will be heard. And I think in many places and, and, and across the federal government, people need to feel like they can be heard and, and they have a voice. And if we truly are going to live up to the aims of being uh, a model employer and um, continue to attract the best and brightest to join the federal government, we need to make sure that they feel comfortable and safe in doing their jobs. So uh, certainly uh, the whistleblower protection statutes have uh, gone a long way and have evolved a long way to make sure that uh, there's a place where those cases can be heard. And again, it, it, it's, it's, a, it's an absolute privilege to be part of the board, to be uh, a place to hear those cases. Captain
0: Oh, thanks. Well, first of all, I want to say, the board is back, <laughs> and we're here to do justice, okay? So you have uh, three very passionate believers in the merit systems, and we want to do everything we can to ensure that people feel encouraged to bring forth their concerns to the board, through the board. If you're a whistleblower and you've been holding off reporting something because you feel like there's nowhere to go, well, we're back. Come on, we wanna hear your case and we wanna do what we can to protect whistleblowers in the federal government. The other thing I wanna say, and because it's really important, is that the board hasn't ceased functioning. Over the lack of quorum, the administrative judges have been hearing initial appeals and been adjudicating adjudicating cases all along. And, you know, I think there's over 4000 cases that they adjudicated in 2021 and only 11 percent came up to the PFR level. So the vast majority of folks have been getting their adjudications done and finalized at the initial appeal level. But, uh, you know, that said, it's very important to have a full quorum, uh, I'm sorry, a full complement uh, and a quorum. And uh, we're, we're here to do what we can.
3: Jason, can I pick up one thing there?
2: Yeah, absolutely, Tristan.
3: Kathy said, of course, if you're holding out, making your disclosures, you know, now's the time to do it. We want to hear your case. And I think it's a good time to reiterate we hope we don't have to hear your case. We hope that when you disclose waste, fraud, and abuse, there's no retaliation, because that's really the culture change that would be necessary in the government, right? So, you know, that's, that's the really key thing. Um, a lot of people may not know that two days after the Whistleblower Protection Act was passed, President George H.W. Bush issued an executive order, and it's now been codified as the standards of ethical conduct, but it says in there, employees shall disclose waste, fraud, abuse, and corruption to appropriate authorities. And it really is a shame that that people need to be afraid of doing that because that's really, you know, in one sense then an obligation that all federal employees have, we know not everybody does it right. Cause it takes a lot of courage to stand up and do that. But um, we, we certainly hope that in addition to employees, you know, being able to do what they know is right, that managers will do that as well because they, people should be able to do that without fear of, am I going to end up with a case before the MSPB?
2: Yeah, no, I, I, I really appreciate you sharing that, Tristan, and and I think it's one of those those things that I think Kathy saying that the board is back is so important. You know, when when there wasn't that that cop on the beat who could give that final clearance and top cover, certain folks who might be doing things that they shouldn't be doing could have been emboldened. And um, I hear a clear message coming out. Um, from you all that, that you're looking, um, you know, at these things more broadly and, um, you know, is, is, is it a a signal of, of, of a difference in, in direction or priority that the board is bringing to these, or is it trying to aim us toward that culture change um, and, and really living the merit system principles um, at their core uh, within the government?
3: Kathy and Ray likely have better thoughts on this than I do, but but I would just say Congress has been trying for a number of years to effectuate this culture change, right? So these laws have been in place for a really long time. And yes, there have been some tweaks here and there along the way, but they're they've essentially largely just been to ensure that MSPB and the courts and the agencies are just you know complying with the spirit of the law that was passed to begin with. so i don't I don't know that it's anything special we bring. We're just trying to enforce the law that's there. But there's some there's some pretty strong laws there because we have a really strong public policy interest in rooting out problems in the government. Um, you know, every taxpayer has an interest in doing that. And so that's that's what we want to protect, whether it falls within MSPB's slice of the system or more broadly, you know, especially as we approach National Whistleblower Appreciation Day. All of us should recognize, you know, whistleblowers uh, for the patriots that they are.
2: Thanks. Uh, thanks, Justin and Ray. I wanted to get your thoughts on this Question of culture. Um, You know, as as a longtime career executive and civil servant, you know, I have this perspective that Congress keeps trying to legislate culture change, and I don't know when they'll figure out that that's just not possible unless you invest in leader development and manager development, and many things that the board has cited in its years, over the years in its studies and reports to the president and Congress. But I'm just curious about your thoughts on that, you know, again, transitioning as a, as a civil servant into this role. Um, and is there any words of wisdom or advice you might have for our, our audience on that front?
4: Jason, I, I, that's a great question. And definitely to the listeners, especially uh, the federal employees and retirees, you know, again, my message to you is thank you for your service. Thank you for your contributions. I thank you for your, your families who've allowed you to um take that calling and and move into public service because it is a very difficult job. And and at the same time, this culture that you discussed, is it is challenging to legislate culture. Uh, We have about 175 or so federal agencies in existence today. And dare I say, each one may have their own culture. (laughs) But we're committed to the mission. And when you look at the federal employee viewpoint, survey up and down the line for, oh, the past couple decades, in fact, you will see employees typically strongly identify with their agency's mission. So that's the good news, right? I think what we sometimes have to deal with, Jason, are the situations in which management has let their employees down. And in some ways, we've tried to legislate better training. We tried to identify better supervisors to take on that role but in in my years of experience, where I do see uh, the the particular challenges is sometimes around the supervisory ranks where uh, retaliation unnecessarily occurs, uh, perhaps for a myriad of reasons, one being culture within that institution. There are risk factors in the workplace that transcends both public and private sectors that uh, leaders need to be aware of when your employees are in the workplace. But I think more importantly, you know, how are people being selected to become a supervisor? Do they have the skills, the competencies, and dare I say, courage to do the right thing? And I think that's in, uh, where we uh, fall down in, in, in uh, Congress's infinite wisdom. They try to address those issues through legislation, but by the time you take that piece of legislation and put it in practice in small or large agencies, geographically, distance from one another, that's where we have a tendency of some of those norms falling down. And many times it's around that first and second line supervisor. So that's my bias. <laughs> and then and, and some of the things that I picked up over my career, and those are the things I think we should also continue to uh, work on.
2: No, thanks for sharing that perspective, Ray. And I think it's a super critical one because at the end of the day, policy can only carry you so far, but the decisions that people make um are, are gonna fill in the rest of the gaps um and um and we've seen how that have played out over time uh we've got just a minute or two left here and uh kathy i wanted to to give you um the last word here on on whether you know you uh have a message for federal employees um the, the community writ large or for folks specifically on national whistleblower appreciation day at the end of the month um, Final word before I sign us out, Kathy.
0: Thank you, Jason. And, and again, thank you for having us on the program. Uh, I want to echo what my colleagues have said. Thank you to federal employees for their service. Thank you for your courage in bringing forth allegations of fraud, waste and abuse and other violations of the merit system principles. Um, you make government better. And we're so grateful for you.
2: Awesome. Well, um, I am so appreciative to each of the three of our guests, all three uh, members of the Merit Systems Protection Board for joining us today. Uh, Kathy Harris, Ray Lamone, Tristan Levitt, uh, thank you for your work. We're glad to have you on the beat at the MSPB, uh, working to ensure that our merit system is real, is vital, and is vibrant, uh, and working to, to uh, help restore trust in government in your own way. Uh, thanks to our listeners for listening. Fed Talk is brought to you by the Federal Employment Law Firm of Shaw, Bransford and Roth. Thanks again to our guests and have a great weekend.